AirPods Pro with adaptive audio. Automatically keeps out the sounds you don't want to hear so you can listen to your music. And lowers your music to let in the sounds you do need to hear. Hi there. Hi, what can I get you? I'll have a strawberry mango coconut probiotic smoothie with wheatgrass. Anything else? Extra wheatgrass. Here you go. AirPods Pro with adaptive audio. Available on AirPods Pro second generation when enabled. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Welcome to Unobscured, a production of iHeartRadio and Aaron Menke. We begin the interview series for Unobscured Season 4 with Dr. Douglas Smith, Dr. Smith is the author of Rasputin, Faith, Power, and the Twilight of the Romanovs, just one of six books he has published on Russia. Douglas is an award-winning historian, and his writing has been published into more than a dozen languages. Anyone who has researched the life of Grigory Rasputin knows just how difficult it can be to separate the man from the myth. As you'll know well from this season of Unobscured, Dr. Smith's work has become an essential guide to that difficult task. His original research set a new standard of understanding the Siberian mystic, from his early life to the details of his murder and the importance of his legacy. Both the man and the myth matter, and there's no one better for walking through the details than Douglas Smith. Since his book was published, its reach has grown year by year, and so has the respect he earns from experts and curious readers alike. We're delighted to have his perspective on Unobscured. Researcher Sam Alberti and writer Carl Nellis talked to Douglas about the revelations that came from taking a new look at Rasputin. It's a pleasure to share this conversation with all of you. This is the Unobscured interview series for Season 4. I'm Aaron Mankey. For Unobscured Podcast, I'm Carl Nellis, and I'm here with my co-producer, Sam Alberti. Today, we're talking with Dr. Douglas Smith, an award-winning historian and translator. Uh, Douglas Smith is the author of six books on Russia. It's a privilege to have him join us. Uh, Douglas, welcome to Unobscured Podcast. Thanks for having me. Um, so your book on Rasputin, Rasputin, Faith, Power, and the Twilight of the Romanovs, it's a landmark study in... Gregory Rasputin's life and his influence. And as I've just mentioned, you've written a lot on Russia. What, what brought you to such an important project uh, and one that focused on Rasputin in particular? Well, I had never really planned to, to write a book about Rasputin and to spend like six years of my life full time doing it. Um, I wrote a book before this called Former People, which told the story of what happened to the Russian nobility, the Russian 1%, if you will, following the revolutions of 1917 with the collapse of the Romanov dynasty and then Lenin and the Bolshevik seizure of power at the end of the year. Um, and I was fascinated by uh, the story. You know, in the United States, we always love to hear about, you know, rags to riches. 
Well, the story of the nobility was the ultimate story of riches to rags. And while I was researching that book, I had to dig deep into the final years of the Romanov dynasty, so the first years of the 20th century. And in every source I seemed to uh, poke my nose into, there was the specter of, of Rasputin hanging, hanging around in the background. And so I became uh, more and more curious about him simply as a result of that, that previous research. Um, and uh, as a figure, as a character, as a, as, a, as a myth and a legend, he began to attract my attention. Um, and then also purely for sort of um, marketing uh, purposes, I realized this was about 2010, that we were going to be coming up on the centenary of the murder of Rasputin in 2016 and then the centenary of the Russian Revolution. Um, and publishers do love these big 100-year retrospective type uh, publishing opportunities. So I thought, well, this is a perfect time to, uh, to revisit uh, and try to really better understand this amazingly important character. Douglas, uh, Sam here. Speaking of the of the sources in that um, in this work, one of the things that was was so illuminating to me uh, through, as I was reading your book uh, is how complicated the just trying to trace out the history of that is, uh, even as he looms uh, so just ever presently in the background. Um, can you uh, describe your work a little bit in analyzing the sources that have formed the tradition history of the Rasputin myth and some of the what has made it what makes it so difficult to dig into like a a kind of unblemished history of of Rasputin? Uh, yeah, well, I, you know, when I decided I want to do the book, um, I I told myself that I wasn't going to go down to the university library and pull out the last. 15 biographies of Rasputin and take notes and sort of regurgitate it all, which is kind of what has happened for a long time now. So you get the same myths and stories and distortions and lies and errors told and retold and retold. Um, So I set myself the task of really digging into the archives and going back to the original sources, the original letters and documents and memoirs and police reports and and things like that, which basically no one has really done, uh, not necessarily their fault, but for most of the Soviet period, documents on Rasputin were not available. It was sort of a taboo subject. You just couldn't study it in depth. so I came along at a good time when a lot of the stuff that for decades no one had been allowed to see, I was given access to. So I spent years in archives across Russia in Moscow and Petersburg, but also out in Siberia, where he was from, places like Tobolsk and Tumyen. Um, and then I also was really interested in, in finding out, you know, what might be available about him outside of Russia. So I went to Paris and Berlin to Vienna, London, Oxford, um, the Hoover Institution at Stanford. So I really ransacked the archives and was able to dig up tons of, of amazing original source material that had escaped the attention of historians before. And in so doing to, I think, dispel with a lot of the myth and, and conjecture and air, and I hope create a much more realistic uh, portrayal of this person. That's great. That really comes through uh, to us, of course, to the readers of your book. And we hope that people who listen to to our program will go and read your book because your research is, is amazing. Let's let's go back to some of what you found. You mentioned Siberia there. 
before your work, as you say, much of what we, you know, quote, knew of Rasputin's life in Siberia prior to his coming to the capital and rising to prominence, uh, it was a mystery. So maybe for Rasputin's early life, what did you discover when you did that work? Well, that's that was one of the real challenges is basically the first 30 years or so of his life are a, a, a giant black hole uh, for which we have very little reliable information. And in a way, that lack of information, lack of, of documentation has allowed um, people to create all sorts of lies and stories about the young Rasputin. There was nothing to refute those stories, pretty much, and so it was sort of an open book you could write as you saw fit. And so people tended to talk about him as this, you know, horse thief, this uh, reprobate, this, um, you know, hooligan, if you will. Um, And I decided that, okay, there's got to be something in the archives out in Siberia that will dispel these stories or prove them to be true. You know, I was open to whatever I might find. And so one of the things that was interesting is um, in Tobolsk uh, in Siberia, which has a a fairly good size archive and has information on Rasputin that no one had really seen before, I was able to to dispel once and for all the story that he had been a horse thief in his youth, which is one of these things that gets repeated over and over and over. But I did find uh, some information that had escaped previous historians, which was a, a small notice in a, a document that recorded uh, arrests and um, brief jailings, if you will, of people in the village of Pakrovskaya, which is where he was from, not far from Tobolsk. And as a teenager, uh, young Grigory Rasputin had, in fact, been uh, thrown, as my dad would say, thrown in the huskal, uh, put in the local pen, the local jail for a couple of days for using abusive language toward the local mayor. Now, this was kind of an interesting uh, discovery um, in that it does give us like one of the few little kernels of real factual information about his youth. And it does, in my reading of it, suggest that he was sort of a ruffian, um, uh, a little bit of a rebel, a little bit of a troublemaker, even as a young person. So that was one of the, the few things that I found that would add to the story. But chiefly what I found there was the lack of evidence uh, to dispel so many of the uh, the false stories. One of the things that that you point out, uh, especially in the beginning of your book, and, and seems to be a theme that comes out, is that Rasputin's background, just being from Siberia, is something that that really follows him and plays plays into his relationships, even in the capital. Um, and it seems like Rasputin, or that uh, uh, Siberia rather, occupies a kind of a complicated place in in broader in the broader identity of Russia. Can you describe some of the the general contours of the place of of Siberia and Siberians within Russian identity and consciousness, especially kind of as they're seen in, as they would have been seen in like European Russia or, or Western right. Well, Russia. obviously for, for so much of the world, I mean, Siberia conjures up all sorts of uh, exotic notions, if you will, you know, bears walking down the street and the vastness of the place, it's extremes of, of, of temperature, um, and the fact that so for so much of Russian history, Siberia has been a dumping ground for for criminals and political prisoners. It's you know this vast space uh, that was some sort of you know enormous um, ice clad jail, if you will, for 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 centuries. Um, and while there is obviously 
a great deal of truth to that.、Um, Siberia is a more complicated place than one might originally think, and it was also、um, a place of freedom, which seems somewhat contradictory. But one of the things that distinguishes Siberia, which is that area east of the Ural Mountains that divides Europe from Asia in that part of the world, is that there was never any serfdom in Siberia. Now, serfdom was basically A form of slavery, if you will, that existed in the European part of Russia.、Um, much of much of the, the the Russian populace under the czars were serfs,、um, which by sort of the beginning of the 19th century really was not all that different in many ways from American slavery. Serfs could be bought and sold; they could be abused、uh, and were abused,、uh, worked to the bone, and what have you. Well, the peasants of Siberia were not owned. They didn't have landlords. They didn't have masters, and so they they had a more independent kind of spirit than the serfs in European Russia. And I think this was、uh, central to understanding Rasputin and who he was. He had never been a serf. He had never been owned. He was、uh, born a peasant, but a, a free peasant. And I think this is、uh, an important aspect of his biography and background that、um, explains. Part of how he managed to do what he do. It's hard to conceive of a Russian serf、um, growing up in such a harsh、uh, type of a system, displaying the level of of independence and freedom of spirit that、uh, Rasputin had.、Mm. And you note that in that early period of his life, he becomes a pilgrim, and that. The themes that you were able to discern from studying the whole arc of his life,、um, they really coalesced during that period. Could you talk a little about what those themes were and how they developed for the pilgrim Rasputin? Yeah, well, the the Russians had、uh, this notion of the holy pilgrim.、Uh, Russian word is stranik. And by roughly 1900, there was maybe as many as a million of these people, typically typically peasants, who picked up and wandered the vast、uh, Russian Empire in search of spiritual and religious enlightenment.、Um, they tended to live on the edge of poverty. Some of them went around in fetters,、uh, chains.、Um, Some of them, even Rasputin, who went around in fetters for a while, would try to sort of mortify the flesh and deny themselves the pleasures of any flesh, whether it be,、uh, you know, food.、Um, Rasputin,、uh, for long stretches as a holy pilgrim, would not change his clothes or underwear.、Uh, lived in the wilds, lived out of doors,、um, in search of enlightenment that they might find in churches and monasteries and from priests. Um, all over the country, and they would simply live off of alms and things like that as they went. So this was Rasputin's university, if you will.、Um, sometime, roughly, when he was around twenty-seven or twenty-eight years old, he apparently had some sort of a religious experience, a vision, or something, and he got up and would leave home for long stretches and travel on foot all over the Russian Empire. Um, as one of these pilgrims seeking enlightenment, and it became, if you will, his university. He learned the Bible inside and out, and was able, after that, to quote long stretches of the Bible from memory.、Um, he had this incredible power of speaking about the Gospels in a way that was direct, honest, earthy, and full of the fire. 
uh, of a true believer that he had gained through these years as a pilgrim. And this is something that sort of set him apart. Um, and he also, if you will, learned all about the social order of Russia. He learned about the nobility. He learned about peasants. He learned about convicts and criminals. Um, and he came to see the world and to see Russia in one in which the peasants were the backbone of the country um, and the elites were in a sense sort of parasites that lived off of the labor of the common of the common man and these were themes that very much shaped his his thinking about scripture um, about the place of religion and and the sort of critique that he kind of developed about the Russian social order. So of course, uh, speaking of the of the elites and and uh, Rasputin's life as a pilgrim, of course that uh, that life brings him to uh, Saint Petersburg. And could you tell us a bit about what Saint Petersburg was like at the turn of the century? What what concerns dominated life there, and what might have attracted Rasputin to come? To that city in the uh, in those so St. Years. Petersburg was obviously the capital of the uh, of the Russian Empire and had been since the beginning of the uh, 18th century when it was first created out of swamps by the Tsar Peter the Great um, and by you know 1900 around the time when Rasputin showed up it was a very sort of vibrant growing. Uh, metropolis full of uh, enormous ghettos uh, of poor, uh, really miserable living conditions on top of which sat a, a glittering uh, small elite of the very wealthy and powerful. But for a figure like Rasputin, who was clearly very ambitious, he, he had... He had uh, enormous hopes for himself and his career as as sort of you know an itinerant preacher, if you will. Um, he was also very much a devout monarchist and believed in the institution of of the monarchy and saw himself as a real devoted son uh, subject of the of the Emperor of Russia. And I think much of what drove him to the capital was was this sort of, if you will, kind of vainglory uh, that he had that somehow he was going to reach the top of Russian society, that he had this message to bring to the elites of Russia and even bring to the, the palace of the czars. And I think this is ultimately what um, led him from one provincial city after another to make his way to Petersburg, where he arrives either in 1904 or 1905, from what we can tell. Sometimes this period, uh, or the years leading up to it, is called the Silver Age of Russia. Can you explain how people have used the Silver Age and, and what is usually meant by that? Right. So the Silver Age refers to a period roughly from 1890 until the outbreak of World War I in 1914. And it's contrasted with the so-called Golden Age of, of Russian literature, which was uh, sort of the first decades of the 19th century with the greatest of all Russian writers and poets, Alexander Pushkin. So what you had in the Silver Age, to contrast with that, was another flowering of, of literature art, culture, music that was going on in that fantasy period um, where you had incredible uh, writers like uh, Akhmatova coming along, uh, Yesenin, uh, Alexander Bloch, 
and, and many others. You had great painters like Vrubel. You had composers like Rachmaninoff and Rubinstein. Um, the ballet was at its height under, um, under Diaghilev and uh, artists like Alexander Benoit. So there was this like outpouring, this literally sort of bubbling of artistic expression that was happening during that period. Um, and this, it's interesting is that Rasputin's life and career overlaps almost exactly with with the Silver Age. So, in some ways, you could view him as as another expression of this this fervent bubbling over of of artistic and intellectual curiosity and productivity. You mentioned, uh, of course, that Rasputin was a um, a devoted monarchist and had the, these you know these ambitions for. Uh, or led by vain glory to reach reach the pinnacle, reach even the czar and the emperor, uh, and the role of of the autocracy just in general in Russia is uh, is so central. It seems like to the story. Um, how would you describe uh, the role that that the autocracy did play in in Russian life and consciousness? Um, and especially the connection between the czar and the people. Well, uh, by this time. Under Tsar Nicholas II, who would who would be the last Tsar, the Romanovs had ruled Russia um, for 300 years since 1613, when the first Romanov was put on the throne. Um, so there had been 300 years of of Romanov uh, monarchy. The later decades of the dynasty under Nicholas II are, are a period of dynamic um, change. The economy is taking off. It's growing. You get an increasingly sizable um, urban middle class. You get the development of, of an urban proletariat. So on one hand, what you have is this sort of dynamism and, and change going on in the economy and in society at large. And then you have this static... Um, political system uh, that goes back to the early 17th century of, you know, one ruler with all uh, supreme power apparently handed down from God. And so there's this growing tension between a a dynamic and developing society and a rigid um, political system that doesn't reflect the change. Um, And it's, it's, it's very much uh, one of the struggles that, that Nicholas faces as czar is how to handle this. And he does an absolutely horrifically, appallingly bad job of handling it. Um, and it's obviously what then leads to, to revolution and, and the downfall of the monarchy in 1917. Part of the problem is, is Nicholas's own personality. Uh, he's weak, he's passive, he's indecisive, and he feels that he was handed this this duty uh, upon coming to the throne following the death of his father, Alexander III, who was a true sort of tyrant who ruled with an iron fist. And, and he doesn't sort of have that character that his father does. And he waffles and he, he prevaricates and he's not always sure what the right move is to make. And he basically, in many ways, sort of uh, uh, fumbles the situation. And he lives in a world that is completely cut off from the realities of the people that he rules over. Um, they live in a gilded cage, the Romanovs do, uh, partially because they know that there are segments of society with the, that want the monarchy swept away, and not only that, but would want to kill him. And there are attempts on his life. Um, Alexander II, 
was blown up by terrorists in 1881, um, and so they're they're very much uh, in a way isolated from the society that they rule over. Mm, you mentioned there uh, Nicholas's personality. Of course, he marries Alexandra. Could you describe her past personality, maybe uh, in comparison to Nicholas, or or? how her personality interacted with this society that she stepped into when she married him. Right. So, obviously, uh, Alexandra, it's important to, to know, was, was German-born, um, marries into the Russian Romanov family, uh, and it was a truly um, loving marriage. They were utterly devoted to each other their entire life. They were utterly devoted to their children, but by temperament, they were in many ways very different from each other. Uh, whereas Nicholas was again sort of weak and, and indecisive and and passive, if you will. She was uh, brittle, yet determined. Um, very much someone who was uh, very shy and awkward in public settings. Always preferred to be. Uh, in the privacy of the family and not out in public, uh, in a sense, doing her royal duties uh, as the empress. She was profoundly mystical, spiritual, um, believed uh, in all sort of uh, what to us today would seem in many ways a strange um, occult kind of notions. Um, And she was somebody who, though she loved... Nicholas dearly saw him for who he was, and it must be said, saw the weaknesses of his character, and so spent much of her her life trying to find ways to support him in his role as czar, and trying to to do what she could in her understanding of it to make him a, a more effective and more powerful ruler. You mentioned uh, Alexandra's. Uh mysticism uh which which seems to show up uh certainly not just in her but it seems it seems like it's a kind of almost a trend among elites in the capital um what was going on in russia at that time during this the silver age uh <clears throat> that made the arist- members among the aristocracy so interested and eager in these kind of eccentric religious figures and occultism mysticism things like that right with the the sort of the <clears throat> The zeitgeist, if you will, of of Fantasiekla Russia, like other parts in Europe, actually, to be honest, at the time, there was there was very much a, a fascination with 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 dark forces at play, with a sense that they were on the verge of some sort of uh, apocalyptic change, that it was in some ways the end of times, um, and there was a profound um, fascination with with mysticism. Spiritualism, the occult, uh, you know, uh, seances and table turning, and uh, and all sorts of these sorts of uh, things. Hypnotism was was quite popular at the time, and that's one thing that's often forgotten. I think when people write about Nicholas and Alexandra and, and their relationship with Rasputin, um, is it wasn't like they were the only ones who were into this kind of thing. 
most of uh, sort of elite aristocratic society in Russia at the time was fascinated with uh, with uh, very spiritualist leaders, with gurus, uh, and what have you. Um, and there was this desire to to seek alternate ways of connecting with with forms of reality that traditional religion and the church. Um, and science uh, were unable to explain to people who were who were seeking answers to to sort of these life's questions that seemed to have this pressing urgency right around 1900. Can you talk about who Mr. Philippe was, who stepped into this environment, and maybe what his rise was like in that milieu? Well, Mr. Philippe is one of the. <laughs> One of the great characters in the whole uh, story of Nicholas and Alexandra, and and then by extension of, of Rasputin, uh, he was uh, basically a necromancer, a seer, charlatan, if you will, uh, from France, who came to the attention of Nicholas and Alexandra by way of the so-called Black Crows, uh, these two sisters who had married into the extended Romanov family, and they were utterly obsessed with the occult and Rosicrucianism and mysticism. And they learned about uh, this Monsieur Philippe through travels to France. Um, and they helped introduce him to Nicholas and Alexandra. Um, and he made his way to the court in St. Petersburg. And they were utterly taken with him. They were convinced he was a prophet, um, that he could divine the future, and that he had insights um, into the nature of rule and power and 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 how um, nicholas should should govern Russia. And he also claimed a, a very unique skill that was uh, really crucially important to uh, Nicholas and Alexandra at the time. And that was the ability to determine and shape the sex of a child in utero. Now, this was hugely important because, obviously, Alexandra's main task as empress was to give birth to a son, an heir to the throne. And she gave birth to four daughters in a row. And there was great consternation uh, within the royal family that Alexandra had failed her duty as the empress. And Philippe claimed that there was a certain magnetic electric energy that emanated from his fingertips and by passing them over uh, the empress's belly once she was pregnant, he could make sure that the next child she had would be a son. And obviously this is something that was high on their list of priorities and that gave Philippe this great um, hold over Nicholas and Alexander for quite some time until he was outed as a charlatan by other members of the royal family and forced to leave Russia and, and go back to France for good. Speaking of, of uh, Nicholas and Alexandra's uh, male heir, then um, it seems like one of the most <clears throat> determinative decisions that they make uh, is when they finally they have a, a male son uh, that he, he of course has has hemophilia but they they keep it a secret for a long time um, why did why did they feel like they needed to keep that such a secret from everyone well obviously there was incredible sense of relief and joy when uh, Alexei the first boy was born into the into the family after four girls um, 
there was a sense that uh, Alexandra had fulfilled her duty uh, as the empress had delivered uh, a, a male heir for Nicholas II. But once it's learned not that long on that he that he has hemophilia, uh, that he has this bleeding disease, there's utter terror and panic because obviously there's a fear, as often happens with, with uh, hemophiliacs, especially in those days when the disease was not as well understood, uh, that he would not live uh, to adulthood. Um, and the last thing they wanted uh, Russia to know was that the boy that she had produced was ill, was diseased, uh, and would likely die within a few years. And this was something they were kept as a very closely um, guarded secret and were terrified um, to let out uh, beyond sort of the confines of the palace. Now, what's interesting is that um, people always assume that what brought Rasputin to the palace was his ability to heal the sick heir, Alexei. But in fact... It's much more complicated than that. And it, you have to, in fact, go back to Monsieur Philippe because uh, Monsieur Philippe, when he left Russia for good, told Nicholas and Alexandra to be patient, that he could see into the future a time when a man would come to take his place as their friend. And that is how they referred to Monsieur Philippe and later to Rasputin was as our friend. And that someone would come to take his place and to provide the same role, uh, to play the same role that he had in their lives. Um, and this is very much then what prepares the way for Rasputin to come into the lives of Nicholas and Alexandra that is independent of the illness of Alexei. When Rasputin does arrive... He makes lots of connections with others among the aristocracy, among the elites, before he meets the Tsar. Um, when, he, when he got to St. Petersburg, 1905 and 1906, what kinds of relationships was he building with these elite figures? Were they his followers? Were they some kind of friend? What were these relationships he was building? Well, what helps sort of open the doors of the capital for Rasputin um, Chiefly uh, are his contacts with higher-ups within the um, Russian Orthodox Church. Through his years as a holy pilgrim, he had come to impress a great many priests and then bishops and archbishops within the church as a true man of God, as a true holy man who has risen up from the depths of Russian peasant society. And he literally gets letters of recommendation from priests and bishops as churches, at churches and monasteries as he goes along. And it's with these letters of recommendation that he shows up in St. Petersburg probably sometime around 1904 and is immediately accepted in uh, at the Alexander Nevsky Monastery, uh, one of the great seats of Russian holiness uh, within the Russian Orthodox Church. Um, and ori originally, these these church members are amazed at this figure. They have never seen someone quite like him. The energy, the fervor 
with which he prays the and preaches the word of God. Um, he's referred to as a as a burning torch, as a taut string. Um, they sense this sort of electrical charge that comes from him as he speaks the word of God, and then through his connections in the church. He then is introduced into aristocratic society. He makes his way from palace to palace, going to various aristocratic salons, um, and these men and women uh, within uh, the upper echelons of Russian society are fascinated by these um, peasant holy men, if you will. It's like they're being put in touch with creatures from another planet. Um, it's a world that they, being part of the westernized urban elite, have no real contact with. They don't go to Siberia. They don't go to peasant huts, and so it it allows them to enter this whole world of, of Russian society from which they're cut off, but w- which holds great fascination for them. Amidst this group of uh, of elites that he's building these relationships with, it seems like, or certainly one of the the more enduring uh, elements of the Rasputin story uh, is that a lot of a lot of these followers were women. Uh, and I was wondering if you could uh, comment and help us to understand what aristocratic Saint Petersburg women found it to be attractive in Rasputin. What what drew them to him? I think. What's really important in trying to understand uh, Rasputin's popularity among sort of um, the women of places like St. Petersburg is is to is to recognize that these were women typically from the uh, upper levels of society, women who did not work, women who were not encouraged or often maybe even really allowed to do work. Um, they were often lonely. They were often in loveless marriages or single. Uh, many of them uh, were not, how should I put it, having their emotional, spiritual needs met either in their personal relationships within the family or from the religious um, figures that they met through the official Russian Orthodox Church, which by this time was very bureaucratic, was almost like a, you know, simply a branch of civil servants, if you will. And a figure like Rasputin comes along, full of of, of dynamism and, and passion and energy, and he very basically on one level, he just listens to them. He's willing to hear them. He's he's willing uh he hears them, he listens to them, he he takes their concerns into his soul, if you will. And for a lot of women, this is this is something they simply have not had in their life, that they've been searching in their life. So that's that's part of it. Um, there's also the the flip side, which, you know, is central to, to who Rasputin was, um, uh, is he was a lech. I mean, there's no better way around it. He would not have fared very well in the uh, the Me Too moment of our, our recent history. Um, he pawed them, he rubbed them, he stroked them. Uh, we really don't know how far he went with some of them. Um, but, uh, you know, to some of these women, his physical attentions may have been welcome, things lacking uh, in their own lives. But I think for most of them, we, they were elements of, of his personality and conduct that they they cared uh, not to indulge him in. Um, um, but there was this, again, t- attention he gave to these women who were, were very much seeking uh, connection, if you will. 
So at this point, what was Rasputin, along with these relationships, what was he actually teaching? Um, were his teachings kind of esoteric? Uh, were they scandalous to the Russian Orthodox Church? Or you mentioned that it was his connections in the church that built the bridge into high society for him. Was he teaching orthodoxy? Were his teachings practical? Can you describe, characterize his his teaching at this point? Well, on one hand, you know, the the church is looking to revitalize itself. Uh, it feels that, the, you know, they're sort of dead at its core. And they, they're looking for um, an injection of energy and fervency and, and, and burning belief. And figures like Rasputin offer that. Um, now, myths uh, and gossip start to develop around Rasputin that he is a member of one of these illegal sects known as the Chlisti, uh, Chlist is the Russian word for whip, uh, that uh, that he is a member of this group that engages in all sorts of strange rites and rituals of self-flagellation, orgiastic sex, um, all sorts of things like this. And this is... This is a cloud that hangs over his head his whole his whole life. He probably was never a member of that. Um, but in terms of his his actual teachings and the message that he brings, really, in many ways, is nothing radical, is nothing terribly um, earth shattering or new. What he's able to do is to is to quote scripture, talk about the teachings of Jesus and the gospel in a way that is imbued with this sort of peasant earthiness. Um, he speaks about it in a way that, that imbues it with a life and an energy that the sort of hidebound priests of the, of the uh, Orthodox Church are, are, are unable to do. He goes on and on at length about the beauty of, of, of nature, of God's creation, um, that can be felt and experienced by being out in the in the fields and and woods of Russia, and this speaks very much to the people in the urban areas. Um, he also has an, a message of love of Christ's love that is powerful, and he also has a certain social critique that I think people are are um, open to listening, and this is very much about the importance of the common people, the importance of the Russian peasant, the importance of the poor, and the degree to which they are being fed upon um, by the upper classes. Much of the teachings that he, he gives is a social critique of the idle rich of the urban capitals. Um, and this is something that he, he very much believes in um, and has a certain resonance among people themselves, even though they may be from these social classes. Speaking of, of dynamic, uh, dynamic religious figures that are, are gaining popularity at this time, one of the most fascinating figures, aside from Rasputin, to me, as I was reading your book, uh, was the monk Iliodor. Uh, <laughs> can you tell us a bit about about who he is and and why he is he looms so heavily in in Rasputin's saga. Yeah, Iliodor is a fascinating and an utterly bizarre character. I mean, he's one of these figures you really couldn't make up even if you tried. He was again one of these sort of uh, popular preachers 
who, unlike Rasputin, does go to the theological seminary and does get a, an actual training uh, in theology and religion and becomes an, an Orthodox priest. Rasputin never gets a theological training, never becomes a priest. Um, uh, but Iliador is uh, an extreme vocal critic of Nicholas II and the autocracy in its in its waning years. Not what you might expect from the left, denouncing it as an oppressive autocratic institution that denies uh, freedom and civil liberties, but a critic from the right. He is the nastiest of anti-Semites, um, is constantly... Um, denouncing Jews as an evil influence, as the destroyers of the Russian Orthodox people, denounces Nicholas and his government for not doing more to come down hard on the Jews and the empire. He denounces intellectuals. He denounces socialists and liberals and the intelligentsia and what have you. And he, he establishes a fairly large following in uh, the city of Tsaritsyn, uh, quite a ways outside the capital. But he becomes a thorn in the side of the regime because he's, he's constantly denouncing it and calling for violence. Um, and early on, Rasputin is drawn to Iliador and another one of these sort of right-wing priests by the name of Germagian. And the three of them come, become sort of a troika, a threesome of these um, upstart preachers, if you will. Um, but eventually, over time, Rasputin breaks with Iliador and Germagian, and they become sort of uh, blood enemies to the point that Iliador will be in, involved in two plots to have Rasputin murdered. Once Rasputin does meet the Tsar and, and meet the Romanovs, what do we know about, you know, we, we've talked about that he was a monarchist and wanted to support um, the Tsar, but do we know anything more about kind of his personal or inner motives and aims uh, focused on Nicholas, Alexandra, <clears throat> the royal household, uh, as he was forming and maintaining a bond with them? Well, we know the first time they met was the 1st of November, 1905, when, uh, as a result of his connections with the uh, the sisters I mentioned uh, the, from Montenegro, uh, the Black Crows who had married into the Romanov family and gotten to know Rasputin, that they found a way to introduce Rasputin into the palace. Um, and there was a meeting that Nicholas and Alexandra had with him, and they were, from the very beginning, utterly beguiled by him. They were completely, completely impressed with him, taken in by him, moved by him, and sat with him for for hours listening to him to him speak. Now it's important the timing of this. The fall of nineteen oh five, Russia is in turmoil. This is the so called revolution of nineteen oh five, when the cities are burning, there's unrest all over the country and and the autocracy actually does come close to being torn down by revolution. And Rasputin comes to them, and what's interesting is from the very beginning of their relationship, he offers Nicholas political advice and says, don't give up the throne, 
don't give up power, maintain the dynasty, maintain the autocracy. And this is just the sort of message that Nicholas is looking for, and especially to hear it not from some minister or general, but to hear it from a peasant from Siberia, from a man of God. It's almost as if he becomes a, 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 a mouthpiece for all of peasant Russia. When Nicholas and Alexander sit down with Rasputin, they feel they are hearing the voice of the peasant masses that they have no other way of accessing. And from the very beginning, he is giving Nicholas political advice. And this is hugely important. It again undercuts the notion that the main attraction to Rasputin was to try to keep uh, Alexei healthy and alive. Um, which does become hugely important, but from the very beginning was was much less important and maybe not even uh, important at all. And what Rasputin gets out of this, obviously, is is just, you know, to be able to bask uh, in knowing that he is admitted to the palace where no other peasant is allowed, that he has the ear of the emperor and the empress of Russia, is uh, something that obviously plays to his notions that he is a divine figure, that he is important, that he's powerful, um, and that it, it gives him, you know, this, this aura of authority uh, that is something I think that he as a very um, striving individual who wanted to see how far he could go with his life and career becomes a, a great reward in and of itself. One of the most helpful ways, uh, as I was, again, reading your book, that you, you frame out in terms of thinking about the nature of that relationship uh, was through the lens of, ro- of a royal favorite. Um, could you tell us a bit about how, how Rasputin uh, stacked <coughs> up with, uh, with other royal favorites uh, and it maybe a little bit about what that institution is? Right. Well, it's, it's, it's a way of thinking about Rasputin that people have generally not considered um, – I, I was immediately struck by it as 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 a functional relationship that is is really important to understanding the dynamic of the relationship. Obviously, monarchies uh, tend to generate royal favorites, and you you know you have them in England, you have them in France and Germany, uh, and other places, and obviously you had them in Russia before. One of the great periods of royal favorites in Russian history was in the reign of Catherine the Great in the second half of the 18th century, um, where you had the Orlov brothers, Gregory Orlov, uh, who was Catherine the Great's lover, who helped to you know, put her on the throne and overthrow her husband, the Tsar Peter the Third, and then after she's done with Gregory Arlov, she takes another favorite, uh, Gregory Potemkin, Potemkin, as he's known uh, in in English, who becomes quite possibly her secret husband and one of her great favorites, is it's 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 someone who helps share the burdens of rule. It's it's a figure that uh, a ruler can completely open up to, um, can can help, um, if you will, share the emotional challenges of of kingship, um, and in a sense, Rasputin fulfills that same function to Nicholas and Alexandra that the Orlov brothers or uh, Gregory Potemkin did for Catherine the Great. One of the things, though, I think that's that's 
similar is that outsiders always hate favorites. So the courtiers in the time of Catherine the Great felt that an Orlov or a, or a Potemkin's access to the ruler and power was not justified; that it was illegitimate, if you will. And that's the same thing that happens with 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 Rasputin: is the ministers and courtiers and generals and aristocrats feel that that the influence that uh, Rasputin has, the access he has, is illegitimate and undeserved. And undermines the prestige of their monarchy. So that's one thing that's similar. One thing that's different about Rasputin as a favorite is favorites typically, once they attach themselves to a ruler, stay very close physically. They live in the palace. They live nearby the palace. They're always there. They're always at the side of the ruler, and they almost always typically use that access to enrich themselves with great wealth. And titles and what have you. What's interesting about Rasputin is that he's very different. He never moves into the palace. He re- maintains his home in Siberia, and he never enriches himself. He he doesn't get any, any sort of noble titles, and he doesn't acquire great wealth, which in in some ways is is very different from what you typically see with a royal favorite. Mm. Let's go. Follow some of those rumors and things that grew up uh, around Rasputin. Do we know if the um, if the raised suspicions and the the preliminary investigation of him and his religious practices during some of those early years, nineteen oh seven and nineteen oh eight, did they affect his relationship with the Tsar and Tsarina? Well, it's interesting is to look at how the the um, criticisms against Rasputin shift over the course of his life. And in the early years, when he, after he's first sort of made connections at court um, and starts to gain notoriety, the criticisms against him are chiefly religious-based, that he's, as I mentioned, a member of this illegal sect, the Khlisti, um, that he is engaged in orgiastic uh, religious practices and what have you. This is the original criticism against him. Um, and there are investigations uh, that are begun into his religious practices back at home in Siberia, and these these concerns are brought before Nicholas and Alexandra, and they basically dismiss them out of hand. And they say that you know whenever a great religious figure rises up out of the people, the religious powers that be tend to dismiss them and distrust them. Um, and try to cast them in a harsh light, and they basically push all of this stuff away and refuse to refuse to listen to these criticisms. As as Rasputin's relationship continues to develop, um, and the these these rumors start to to swirl a bit more, you know that the first serious test then of his relationship with the with the throne comes when Prime Minister Stolypin and uh, Gerasimov try to banish him from the capital unsuccessfully. Um, I'm just curious, why were such powerful men like them unable to to do something that seemed kind of simple, to, to banish him from the capital? Right, exactly. Um, one of the things that, that happens over time is that the more... Rasputin is, is criticized by powerful men within the government, within the army, within the church. The more 
Alexandra doubles down that she is not going to let them take Rasputin away from her. Um, I think she always regretted the fact that she had allowed uh, members of the Romanov family and within the government circles to force her and Nicholas to get rid of uh, Monsieur Philippe. Uh, and she was she was determined that that was not going to happen again. And Nicholas could not stand confrontation with Alexandra. Um, and it's it's there's a story. It may be hypocritical, but I, I put it in the book because I think it captures a certain truth, whether or not it was actually said or not. But apparently, Nicholas told uh, Stalipin uh, that, you know, I cannot get rid of Rasputin. Because for me, it's better to have one Rasputin than, you know, another hundred hysterical fits uh, from Alexandra if I'm forced to get rid of this man. So you all will just need to find your way to deal with his presence, with the fact that he's a part of our life, because I, I just can't get rid of him. My wife needs him. The Empress needs him. And this is just how it's going to be. With Nicholas saying things like that, can you help us understand how serious monarchists who supported the Tsar <clears throat> thought they were helping him by publicly attacking Rasputin when that came about? Well, those who are devout monarchists come to see uh, Rasputin's presence and the rumors um, and gossip about him as a horrible womanizer as a member of this illegal religious sect, that this is um, tarnishing the reputation of the throne. This is undermining uh, the legitimacy of the Romanov dynasty. So they perceive it as protecting Nicholas and Alexandra, protecting the throne by trying to remove Rasputin um, and have him banished to Siberia um, and never, you know, being allowed to come back into the presence of Nicholas and Alexandra. So that's kind of how they perceive their attempts to, as they understand it, open the eyes of Nicholas and Alexandra to the true character of Rasputin and to the damage he's doing to the aura um, around the throne. But there's another dynamic going on is, 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 is they are, are very much resent Rasputin because Nicholas and Alexandra allow very few people into their private world. Um, and that extends to the aristocracy and the upper reaches of the government. They don't even allow the great princes and princesses of the, uh, of the realm into their most private and intimate spheres of life. Yet they are allowing a peasant to have access to that. And this is something that rubs them all the wrong way, that makes them angry, envious, jealous, um, there's a good deal of sort of basic sort of class hatred where these aristocrats look down their nose at the peasant masses of Russia. And so there's an also element of that going on in their criticism, something obviously that they don't they won't say, but is um, very much part of what is motivating their actions. Speaking of that, that incredibly <clears throat> close access that Rasputin has with the Romanovs, Another of the, the most enduring uh, elements of the Rasputin myth is that uh, he and Alexandra were lovers. And you note that it was most likely that that idea came about from Iliodor, who uh, published a, a letter 
from supposedly is from from Alexandra to Rasputin. Can you describe that letter and uh, the effect that it had in the public once it was once it was released? Yes. Yeah, so um, Alexandra um, and Rasputin exchanged letters. Uh, Rasputin also exchanged letters with uh, with the children um, in the family. And on a visit to Pakrovskaya, to Rasputin's home, Rasputin showed some of these letters to Iliador. Now, we don't know exactly what happened, but it appears that Iliador stole some of them, including a letter that Alexandra wrote to Rasputin at a moment of extreme grief and sadness and emotional distress, in which she talks about, you know, I'm only able to, you know, feel at peace and at ease when I can rest my head on your shoulder, when I'm in your presence, when I feel your warmth around me. Um, and Iliador basically held on to this letter uh, as, as, a, as a weapon to use against Rasputin when the time came. And he did just that. Copies of the letter were made. They spread throughout uh, society. And it became the basis of this notion that there was a sexual relationship between Rasputin and the Empress. Now, 99.9% certain there never was any such relationship. Um, but again, this information was brought before for Nicholas, and he was presented with the actual letter, and he said, yes, this is Alexandra's handwriting, took the letter, put it in his desk drawer, and basically said, we will not speak of these matters further. But again, it becomes um, part of the basis for the myth that not only is Rasputin offering spiritual succor, um, emotional comfort, but that, in fact, he's engaged in a sexual relationship with the Empress, which then later grows and metastasizes to the point that he's also sleeping with the daughters of Alexandra, in fact, even gets one of them pregnant, and that there's talk that Alexei, the heir to the throne, is, in fact, the bastard child of Rasputin. And all this stuff just gets more outlandish and crazier as the years progress. So what do we know about Rasputin's actual relationship to the Romanov children, the daughters to Alexei from that time? What well, is striking, we, we know that, you know, he was he was allowed access to the nursery um, where the children were being raised. Uh, he would help put them to bed. He would roughhouse with them. Um, it's quite startling. Um, and it, it you really question the judgment of Nicholas and Alexandra um, because there are maids present, there are nursemaids present, um, and they see this and they're they're shocked by it. Um, and they begin to then talk outside the palace and, it's, and it starts to spread. Um, again, I don't think there was ever anything untoward uh, that happened at these moments. They were always being watched by the parents or by nurses, what have you, nursemaids. Um, but it does become the source for gossip and rumors. We have letters um, that have survived that Rasputin wrote to the children, and they're they're you know they're they're very innocent and they're very you know they don't uh, suggest anything nefarious there. They're very much you know, Tanyusha, I love you, I miss you, God loves you, God shines on you. Go out, be in nature. They're of that sort of nature. One of the the big 
formative moments, it seems like, or at least an important one uh, for, for Rasputin, was his, his trip through the Holy Land in 1911. Can you tell us a bit about uh, what prompted that, how that affected him, and how that f- uh, formed his own sense of uh, purpose and standing as a holy man? Well, just as you know, I, I mentioned that he had begun his religious life as one of these uh, holy pilgrims going around Russia from church to church and monastery to monastery. Um, once you've tapped out uh, Russia, what's the next big place to go as a pilgrim? And that would be to go to the Holy Land. And it's not as exotic maybe as it first seems that you know a Russian in 1911 would be going to the Holy Land. There were actually package tours uh, that Russians would go on that would that would take them to see the places connected to the life of Jesus. And this is essentially what he did: is he went on one one of these package tours, if you will. But he was profoundly moved by the experience and he wrote about it and he and, and he sent letters back to Nicholas and Alexandra about the meaning it had for him. One of the things that he came back with was a renewed um, conviction that the only true form of Christianity was Russian Orthodoxy. He had nothing but horrible things to say about the other branches of the Christian faith. And, and he came to believe that pilgrimage to the Holy Lands should be encouraged among Russian society as a way of instilling greater faith in the church and by extension then by instilling greater faith and loyalty among Russian Orthodox believers and subjects of the crown in the sanctity of the throne itself, that this was a way you could further bind Russians to the autocracy was through these trips to the Holy Land. And and he would come back and speak about his experiences there. And this definitely sort of gave him a greater sense of religious authority in the eyes of his believers. Hmm. At the end of that year, 1911... <clears throat> You note that there's this, and, and you describe, of course, in your book, this confrontation between Iliador and uh, Germigan and Rasputin, um, and you describe it as, as one of the most bizarre and mysterious events in Rasputin's life. Um, what prompted these men to dramatically turn on Rasputin, as you said earlier, that they, that they do this and they become, as you said, blood enemies? What happened there? Well, it's it's bizarre. There's there's conflicting accounts of of, of what happened, but it was in Saint Petersburg, and uh, Germagen and Iliador summoned uh, Rasputin to a meeting. Now, it's possible that they sensed that Rasputin's place uh, alongside Nicholas and Alexandra was somehow weakened. That the criticisms around him had reached such an extent that maybe Nicholas and Alexandra were thinking of cutting themselves free of Rasputin, thus meaning there would be an opening for a similar figure. And Iliador had always hoped that he would be able to take Rasputin's place alongside Nicholas and Alexandra. So they confronted Rasputin and basically uh, accused him of being the devil, of being the Antichrist, uh, there's a bizarre, you know, 
uh, talk that they, you know, grabbed at his penis and were going to try to, you know, lop it off uh, and neuter him, turn him into a eunuch on the spot, that sort of thing, that there was a fight and struggle and they were beating him with the cross saying, out devil, out devil. Um, and they were trying to get him to to promise to go back to Siberia and never show his face again. They overplay their hand terribly. Um, and in fact, it only further strengthens uh, Rasputin's place uh, at court and further damages uh, the position of, of Iliador and Germ again. And they are basically then, at that point, they rupture any relationship they have with Rasputin. And they then go on and basically lose their place in the church. And especially uh, in terms of Iliador, who denounces his faith uh, and becomes an apostate and, and leaves the leaves the church altogether. Around this time and shortly after, uh, you also note that there's there's souring relationships, uh, kind of on a on a broader scale, and a number of different uh, moments or, or or factors of that. Uh, how significant were were things like Novoselov's pamphlet, the Rasputin dossier, and Guchkov's blow to the alcove speech in souring the relationship between <clears throat> the Duma and the Tsar, and kind of a large scale. Right. So it's. You know, up until this point, really, all of the information people have about Rasputin is is oral. It's word of mouth. It's gossip. And then in 1910, uh, a journalist by the name of yeah, Novoselov publishes in the Moscow Gazette a story about Rasputin as this debauched pseudo holy man who's a sex maniac and a pervert and a lech and a, and a threat to society, which causes shockwaves uh, and gets repeated in magazines and newspapers throughout the country. And then Novoselov later tries to, to publish this information in a pamphlet that is repressed, but then parts of it get leaked to the press and printed throughout. And it's one of the interesting things is is there's a certain level of freedom of the press now in Russia after 1905, and, and Nicholas is just livid. He's so angry that newspapers are publishing these things about Rasputin that he tries to get it to stop, but his ministers say, look, you know, uh, after the revolution of 1905, you granted freedom of the press generally, and so we simply cannot go around censoring uh, newspapers and magazines. Um, we can try to confiscate them after the fact, but we can't beforehand tell them you can't write about this person. So this greatly increases the controversy around Rasputin and leads then to a figure, a deputy in the Duma, which is like the parliament, um, to get up in 1912 um, and denounce Rasputin by name and to insist that the crown tell them and the country who is this uh, Rasputin figure, what is the source of his power, is he operating uh, on his own behalf? Does he represent some cabal of, of mysterious figures uh, and is simply working to enrich them? Who is he? What is he doing? Um, and the country needs to know. This creates an enormous scandal and and introduces a rift now between the throne and the the Duma and the parliament that leaves them at loggerheads and only gets worse and worse in the final five years of, of the life of the dynasty. 
We're really, really happy to talk with with Douglas. We love this book, and uh, we're we're working on the show. We're loving it. So one of the one of the things that I that that's interesting uh, amidst the rumors that are developing around Rasputin, especially the ones that are religious based, <clears throat> is that he he also routinely seems like he's surprised major religious figures along the way with how just normal orthodox he was folks like Fiofan and Father Ustramov back back home and Bishop Alexei uh in what ways how how typical was Rasputin in terms of what an orthodox Christian was like at that point well you know there were so many attempts to to paint him as a as a heretic and uh dangerous sectarian and all that and there are all these actual church investigations into his practices and beliefs and even people who wanted to sort of you know paint him in the in the in the worst of colors were not able to do it i mean he he believed in the rites and rituals he attended uh services regularly he followed the prayers he followed the uh you know the ritual and what have you he, when he preached the word when he spoke the word of the gospels he literally was quoting directly from from scriptures and and so in this there wasn't in any sense that he was really perverting uh, the message uh, of the church was perverting the message of, of, of scripture. He was very much someone who uh, ultimately tried to express the notion of love thy neighbor as thyself um, and what have you. Now, of course, there's also this tension between the message, his practice uh, as an Orthodox believer and the way he, you know, treated women and something like that and there's this huge gap and we still don't fully understand you know uh all exactly that what went on with women and there were i think attempts at times probably frequently with him to bend scripture and teaching for his own sexual uh goals you know he did not come up with this saying, even though it's often attributed to him. But, you know, the notion that uh, he who does not sin uh, cannot repent and he who does not repent cannot be saved. Thus, if we give ourselves into sin, we are thus leading ourselves to, to repentance and redemption and, and being saved. This idea did not begin with him in Russian culture. Um, but it does seem fair to say that he did use it, uh, especially when he was trying to uh, lure some woman to his bed. Mm. Mm. Can you tell us a bit about uh, Varnava and the process of his elevation to bishop? How big a part in that process did Rasputin play? So one of the things that happens is, you know, originally coming up, Rasputin woos the clergy. They're impressed by him. Uh, they're convinced of the sincerity of his religious uh, expression. Um, but then as that all changes, he, he acquires a great deal of enemies within the higher echelons of the Russian Orthodox Church, which you need to understand is a very much bureaucratic, top-down, basically government-run uh, institution. And so they start coming after Rasputin. So Rasputin almost starts looking around for allies, defenders, and and wants to have them put in positions of power within the Russian Orthodox Church to, uh, if you will, guard him from his his enemies. And one of those is, is Varnava, 
who was also born a peasant like him, had no real education, but was a powerful preacher, um, and then sort of makes his way slowly up the church. And Rasputin decides that he wants Varnava uh, to be appointed bishop. But the bishops are strongly against it because they don't think he's worthy of the title and the position. Um, but the one who can ultimately push this through is the emperor. And Rasputin, you know, inveigles his way in with Alexandra and Nicholas and gets Nicholas against the wishes of the body known as the Holy Synod, which is a sort of the ruling body of the church, to go ahead and make Varnava uh, a bishop, which he later becomes. Um, and again, this this introduces this great rift and distrust between the official church and and Nicholas, which further undermines Nicholas and his power and authority. You know that uh, in your book, one of the, especially related to uh, Rasputin's uh, religious mystique um, and, and that persona, that uh, his reported power, rep- his reported power to heal is one of the most salient aspects of his enduring persona. Did Rasputin ever claim that, like himself claimed that he had the ability to heal, or was that something that was attributed to him by others at some other That's point? That's a, a notion that was attributed to him. Um, and this was obviously one of the central questions I tried to, to, to get at in my research for the book. He really doesn't go around saying, I'm a faith healer. This is something that um, arises, you know, out of his uh, relationship with Nicholas and Alexandra and Alexei, the son, um, and then get spread around. But people don't go to him necessarily to be healed of something. Uh, if if they're to be healed, it's 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 of an emotional illness, uh, an emotional spiritual injury. Um, that's really what uh, sort of healing he he claimed to be able to offer to people. How important uh, were some particular heal- healings for Rasputin's relationship with the royal family, particularly the, the healing at Chbawa? Yeah, so that's uh, one of the crucial moments in the relationship there. Um, it's uh, at one of the hunting lodges in what is today modern-day Poland, and uh, Alexei goes out on a, on a carriage ride, and he's jostled about, and this produces a bleeding uh, episode um, in his leg. And it becomes quite critical. The doctors are fussing over him. They don't know what to do. It's getting worse and worse. The boy is in excruciating pain, which is driving his parents, you know, utterly mad to see their, their beloved son hurting so terribly. Um, it gets to the point where they're about to, you know, have a priest brought in for the last rites. They don't think that, that Alexei is going to survive. So as sort of a last-ditch uh, effort, Alexandra sends a cable, a telegram to Rasputin, who's home in, in Siberia, um, you know, for some sort of intercession. And he cables back and says, don't worry, your son will not die. God will take care. Do not obsess over the child and tell the doctors to leave him alone. I know that all will be well. And miraculously, 
He was right. And he, he, the boy was well. The boy does survive. And even the doctors were utterly confounded. They could not make sense of this. They could not explain it in the medical understanding uh, that they had it at the time. But it's something that obviously I had to try to figure out uh, and others have tried to make sense of is, is you know, well, what was the relationship between Rasputin and, and the health of the, the Tsarevich, the, the heir to the throne? And the way I kind of come down on it and think about it is, you know, the doctors were constantly poking and prodding um, the boy when he was bleeding, which would have inhibited uh, the clotting effect, which would have only made the bleeding worse. That's one factor. So Rasputin, in a sense, was right by saying, tell the doctors to go away and leave him alone. That was actually good medical advice for the time. And I think he also allowed Alexandra an inner calm and peace that all would be well. And I I talk about this a bit in the book, the degree to which we really are only now really understanding sort of mind-body wellness and the degree to which maybe by calming Alexandra, that calm and confidence was somehow conveyed to little Alexei as well. And in some ways, maybe maybe this helped aid the healing process. But it's also important to remember that, that Rasputin never healed or cured Alexei of hemophilia. He, he was a hemophiliac his whole life. He died while still afflicted with hemophilia. Um, but it is true that he never did die of a, of a bleeding episode as long as Rasputin was alive and in the story. So speaking of, of uh, wounds and healing, uh, Rasputin, of course, is he's uh, attacked uh, many years before he's actually killed by Kionia Guseva. Do we know much about how Nicholas and Alexandra reacted in the immediate aftermath of that attack? That was one of the more bizarre and horrific moments in the life of, of Rasputin when he was back home in the summer of 1914 in Pokrovskaya and a strange figure came up to him and he thought she was seeking alms and he went to get his coin purse out and had given her some money and she plunged a, a fairly lengthy dagger into his abdomen screaming, I've killed the Antichrist. Um, that he survived this attack is is truly miraculous. When word reached Nicholas and Alexander, they were on the royal yacht sailing in the Baltic Sea. And what's amazing is, is we know the day that Nicholas learned of it, um, but he makes no mention that he had heard this or he was concerned about it in his diary, which is truly striking. The only thing he did was a day or two later send word that the police should make uh, every effort to keep their friend, as they called Grigori, safe from any such further attacks. But it's, it is strange that they did not express a truly um, grievous reaction at the time. We come to, you know, the clouds are moving in, right, over, over uh, the Tsar and over Rasputin at this time. And that's the, that's the term that the Rasputin uses in his menacing cloud letter. Uh, what effect did that letter have on on Tsar Nicholas? Uh, unfortunately, it didn't have enough of an uh, an impact on on the Tsar. The the famous letter that you're talking about was written by Rasputin 
while he lay in hospital in the city of Tumen in Siberia, recovering from the attack by Gusyeva. Um, and he knew that Europe was fast approaching war, and he was determined to keep Russia out of the war, and he was determined to convince Nicholas not to listen to his generals and ministers who were pushing him to go to war against Austria. Um, and this letter is, is truly remarkable. And the fact that the letter has survived and is now in the rare uh, rare book room in, in the main library at Yale University is also somehow bizarre and strange. Um, but he, he foresaw, it's prophetic, he foresaw that if Russia were to go to war, that it would lead to seas of, of blood, millions of innocent Russian peasants killed in bloody slaughter. And he, he, he pled with Nicholas in the most powerful and prophetic of terms to, to not go to war. And I always think it's one of those great what-if moments in the history of the 20th century is what if Nicholas had listened to Rasputin and, and not and not agreed with his generals how the course of history might have been different. Mm. Do you want to take a run at reading it? Let me see. Dear friend, I'll say again, a menacing cloud is over Russia. Lots of sorrow and grief. It's dark, and there's not a ray of hope. A sea of tears, immeasurable. And as to blood, what can I say? There are no words, indescribable horror. I know they all want war from you, evidently not realizing that this means ruin. Hard is God's punishment when he takes away reason. It's the beginning of the end. You are the czar father of the people. Don't allow the madness to triumph and destroy themselves and the people. Yes, they'll conquer Germany, but what of Russia? If one thinks then truly never for all of time has one suffered like Russia, drowned in her own blood. Great will be the ruin, grief without end. Grigori. I was, I was just going to ask if you could uh, comment on, on Rasputin's uh, general perspective on war, because it, uh, it seems like he, he brought that up more than once. Well, that's another side to Rasputin that, that was new to me that didn't come out in the previous biographies that I had read, is that and in this sense again I, I think you can say that he really did hearken to the to the teachings of of the gospels is that he was he was ultimately a man of peace now that does not mean he was a man of good relations with individuals but he was never someone who called for war called for vengeance and what have you and uh you know there were wars in the balkans before world war one that led up to World War One, and he was very vocal at that time in 1912, for example, against going to to war. That war was wrong. That it went against uh, the teachings of of the church. That it went against the message of Jesus Christ. Um, and he was so vocal that there were a good many Russians who denounced him as some sort of traitor. That he was not a true patriot of Russia because he was counseling the Tsar against going to war against Russia's uh, supposed enemies. Can you describe for us the scale of 
surveillance that was assigned to Rasputin in his later years from 1912 on through 1916. How many different agents were either watching him or watching out for him uh, at any given time in that period? It is amazing the amount of resources that the secret police, the Akhrana, um, and other police agencies uh, directed towards Rasputin in the last you know five or six years of his life. Um, a, a brief aside, I was allowed access to the police files on Rasputin, which are kept in one of the major archives in Moscow. Um, and they pulled them all out for me, and they literally measured probably close to a meter high, thousands and thousands of pages of surveillance documents. Um, there was typically, you know, dozens of agents that were tracking him at any one time. And not only were they tracking him, but they were tracking everybody that he came in contact with and would, would do investigations into his circle and his contacts and associates and what have you. And part of it was surveillance, but part of it was also after the summer of 1914, when he was almost murdered, supposedly they were also charged with keeping him safe from another such attempt on his life. So there are voluminous files um, of, of uh, investigations, of surveillance, um, and you could almost do a whole book just on, on these documents, and it would probably make for some fascinating insights. You note that one of the, um, one, one of the most uh, incredible, or one, often retold and incredible stories about Rasputin is this this incident at the Yar, as it's called, uh, but that it, it probably didn't happen the way that it's often been told. Can you walk us through that? What like what actually is likely to have to have happened uh, at the the Yar restaurant, uh, and how some <clears throat> such different versions of it have been have come down to us? Right. Well, the the so called incident at the Yar is one of the iconic. Uh, moments in the the biography of Rasputin. It's in every book on him, um, and it's sometimes told in, in somewhat different versions. But basically, the 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 standard story is that uh, in March of 1915, uh, Rasputin took the train from uh, Petrograd, as Petersburg was now called, uh, down to Moscow. Uh, where he met with some friends, and one night they went out to this famous restaurant called the Yar, which had this uh, um, gypsy choir and chorus and everything, that he got outlandishly drunk. He started chasing the girls in the gypsy choir. Um, He started being rude and vulgar, uh, and then it, it, it sort of culminated in him jumping up on the table uh, exposing himself, dropping his trousers, waving his member around, and and claiming in front of the astonished guests at the uh, restaurant that this was the the altar at which the empress worshipped. Uh, at which point the police were called and they dragged him, snarling and screaming and cursing out, and put him into jail. Now this is the standard story that you'll read over and over and over. Uh, some more recent defenders of Rasputin in Russia have claimed that the story is a lie, that uh, Rasputin was never there, and that that, in fact, this was a doppelganger, a body double that Rasputin's enemies had sent into the Yar restaurant to try to destroy him. 
Um, so I was obviously desperate to try to get to the bottom of the story when I was doing my research. And it was, in fact, in the police files in this archive in Moscow that I found the clues to sort of unlocking this riddle uh, once and for all. All of it is there in black and white, all of the surveillance reports. And indeed, uh, agents tracked uh, Rasputin from Petrograd to Moscow on the train in March. They followed him around literally by the minute. And indeed, he did go to the Yard restaurant. But what's interesting is you read the policeman's report of what happened there. There was no talk of drunkenness. There's no talk of chasing chorus girls, gypsy chorus girls. There's no talk of, you know, dropping his trousers and, and waving his member around. And there's no talk of any arrest. In fact, they had dinner. He went back to someone's house. Uh, he did get drunk the next day and drove around with some friends. And then the agents followed him back to the train station and he went back to Petrograd. End of story. So the police send this report back to Petrograd, where it's read by the head of the Akhrana, a man named Vladimir Junkovsky, who is a devout sworn enemy of Rasputin and is convinced that he is going to bring him down where others have failed. So he writes back to the chief of police in Moscow and says, yes, I've seen this report from the Yar. Clearly, this is a mistake. I'm sure something else must be missing and must have happened. Now, in between the lines... The police in Moscow know what is being asked of them. And so you can see them start to generate, after the fact, new documents that purport all sorts of bizarre and disturbing elements that supposedly happened in the R restaurant. And they send these to, Ju- to Junkovsky in Petrograd. And he says, I still don't think you have the full story. And so they literally, you know, quote unquote, sex it up, if you will, to make it more outlandish and add all sorts of crazy elements to it. Not only sexual stuff, but in fact that he was, you know, uh, meeting with various uh, shady uh, figures who were involved in in vast uh, graft and corruption schemes to defraud, uh, you know, the, the national treasury of all sorts of millions and millions of rubles and what have you. And so finally, they create this outlandish story on official police letterhead that Jankowski satisfied and then takes it to Nicholas and uh, says with faux sincerity of how difficult it is for him to have to open the eyes of Nicholas to this horrible incident that had happened. But it is his duty as a servant of the czar that he speak the truth. Uh, and presents these fake documents to to Nicholas. He shows them to Alexandra, and Alexandra says, this is, this is total nonsense, and here Alexandra was right. This is a pack of lies, and I refuse to believe it. Uh, and so it again is then taken as proof that nothing can damage Rasputin in the eyes of Nicholas and Alexandra, and he can go to any lengths he, he wishes, and his place is secure, but in fact, he really never did anything wrong that night at the Yar restaurant. So there are lots of other r- rumors about Rasputin at the time, uh, especially about him being a spy, that crop up with the beginning uh, of, the second, of, of the First World War. Can you tell us about what some of those rumors about Rasputin the spy were? Well, it's interesting, again, you know, whatever uh, the concerns of the day happened to be, 
uh, everyone wants to sort of trace the origins back to to Rasputin. If before it was religious perversion and the downfall of morality, well, it's got to be Rasputin's fault. Once the war gets going in 1914, not only gets going, but gets going badly for Russia, and they are not doing well in the war against German Austria, well, then clearly who's to blame? And instead of, you know, looking to the obvious sources, there, there arises this idea in society that, aha, there must be traitors in our midst who are selling out the country, selling out our war secrets and what have you, and they trace it all back to Rasputin and to Alexandra. Alexandra, as you recall, is German by birth, um, is, is extremely unpopular in Russia, and many are convinced that she is, given her nationality, selling out Russia, that she's a traitor to Russia, she's defending Germany, and that she's doing this together with Rasputin, that the two of them are aligned together to to sell out Russia, that they are part of what become known as the quote-unquote dark forces at work trying to undermine the Russian war effort. One of the things that... Uh, uh I think often pops up in in that regard, or, or a, a misconception uh, perhaps, is that Rasputin and Alexandria were kind of Alexandra were kind of scheming to get Nicholas out of the capital eventually when he he goes off to to Stavka. Um, is there any truth to that that they were trying to get him to leave to consolidate their own power, or is there there more going no, on? No, and in fact, it's it's just the opposite dynamic that's that's going on, which is again one of the falsehoods that's. Uh, sort of percolated through all the, the history about Rasputin is that exactly that, that Nicholas um, is purposely sent away to the supreme headquarters of the army, known in, uh, in Russian as Stavka, um, so that Rasputin and Alexandra, with Nicholas away, can seize the reins of government um, and basically run the country at the same time as they work as traders to sell the country out to the Germans. In fact, it was just the opposite. They did not want Nicholas to go off to headquarters because they knew how uh, impressionable he was and that they knew that um, if Nicholas is going to be surrounded by his generals, he will do what they tell him to do. And they want him near them because they feel that their advice, their guidance and counsel is what should matter. And so they desperately want him to stay uh, at the palace and not go off to headquarters. So it's in fact the opposite of what the long-held view was. By 1915, 1916, how heavily did Rasputin figure whether directly or indirectly, in a kind of a breakneck uh, speed of ministerial sackings and appointments in the government, uh, maybe that would reinforce that idea about um, Rasputin and Alexandra kind of pulling strings and that kind of thing. Well, there is by the last couple of years of the uh, of the dynasty this this phenomenon that becomes known as ministerial leapfrog where basically like one prime minister is being sacked, a new one hired every other month. There's a, there's a new head of the police. There's changes at the upper echelons of the military and other um, posts in the government, minister of interior and what have you. Um, and everyone starts to assume that all of this is being done at the behest of Rasputin. 
Um, it's more complicated than that, but it is true that by by those latter years, uh, Rasputin is exercising more influence on ministerial appointments, uh, has more opinion about these things, and Alexandra listens to him and tries to lean on Nicholas to make some of these changes. But what's important to remember is that part of the reason Rasputin is doing this is he is very much uh, fearful for his life. There have been several uh, attempted assassination uh, assassinations of Rasputin, um, and he is terrified that the people uh, in charge with keeping him safe are in fact the ones that want him dead. And so he is very much... Um, leaning on Alexandra to make sure that the people they hire to be, for example, the head of the police or the minister of the interior are, in fact, allies of his and not not enemies just waiting to do him in. You mentioned that there were, uh, had been several uh, attempts on, his, on Rasputin's life. Um, one of them came about from uh, members of that he was in this kind of political troika with can you can you describe some of the outlines of that of that murder attempt right so there were several um plots and assassinations that were attempted against Rasputin in his lifetime and one of the more bizarre uh was put together by the sort of uh the so-called troika the threesome uh at the head of which was the minister of interior a man named uh Hvastov, who in fact got the job as minister uh, claiming to be a defender of Rasputin and an ally of Rasputin. But he very quickly then shifts to the, the other side, to the competing camp, and starts trying to dream up ways to to do in Rasputin. He, he plots to have him put on a train and sent off uh, outside the capital, and then someone was going to come and pick him up and throw him off a speeding train. Um, there's attempts to put uh, together a bottle of poison wine that he will drink and die. Um, and then together with a couple others, he comes up with trying to lure Iliador, who by this time has fled Russia for Norway, to pay Iliador 60,000 rubles if Iliador could get some of his allies who are still in Russia to shoot and kill Rasputin. Now, this uh, plotting gets very complex, and I go through it all in great detail in the book. It's really fascinating. It's like a bizarre sort of uh, crime story. But it all comes to light before it can happen. And Hwastov claims that, no, 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 I was never trying to kill Rasputin. I was trying to out a plot to kill Rasputin. But in the end, the whole thing blows up in his face. But it, it, it offers further proof to, to Alexander and Rasputin that even the people that they hire and place in positions of power to keep Rasputin safe are, in fact, snakes in the grass who want him killed, which heightens the sense of, of paranoia that is seeping through uh, the court and Rasputin's life in these final few years. You trace what you call Rasputin's uh, apotheosis to his interaction with Petrograd Governor General Obolensky <clears throat> in 1916. Can you describe that interaction and what it implies concerning like, the level of power to which Rasputin had actually ascended at that point? Right. So I, I call it the apotheosis because it seems to me that this interaction that he has with, with Obolensky 
at the time signified just the degree to which he had gone in being able to manipulate uh, Nicholas and Alexandra when he felt it was necessary. Uh, Abelensky, Prince Abelensky, came from one of the great aristocratic families of Russia. Um, these were the, the, the families that basically were the pillars of the Romanov dynasty. These were the families that uh, literally ruled the country alongside the Romanovs. Uh, great wealth, great power, uh, and prestige. The kind of people who never would have allowed a peasant uh, into, their, into their office or room or palace. And Rasputin felt that Abelensky was not doing his job. In part, he felt that Abelensky was not doing a good enough job to make sure there was a steady uh, supply of food being brought to the capital. And in this, Rasputin was 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 correct and and on to something. So he 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 went to Abelensky, um, and you know upbraided him for not doing his job. And Abelensky became very obsequious and basically threw himself at the mercy of Rasputin, you know, insisting that you know he had done everything that uh, Rasputin had ever wanted. He pulled out letters uh, that Rasputin had sent him, requests various favors, and what he having said, I've always followed these to the law and whatever you wanted, I've given you. Um, but the fact that he could speak this way to someone like Abelensky upbraid him and criticize him, and then basically lead to Abelensky's downfall a few months later shows just, uh, in my opinion, the ultimate pinnacle of power that, that he had reached by early 1916. Uh, can you describe for us Felix Yusupov's uh, <clears throat> character and personality and, and what his, his family and upbringing were like? So uh, Prince uh, Felix Yusupov was uh, a member of one of the great uh, aristocratic families of Russia, uh, centuries of extreme wealth and power and prestige. Um, one of the truly one of the richest, most powerful families in Russia. Um, his parents had had doted on his older brother, who was killed in a duel, and then all of their attention and devotion, especially from his mother, Princess Zinaida, were 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 showered upon Felix. He was doted on. He was spoiled. Um, he was indulged. Uh, he was a, a, you know, sort of the worst, I would say, examples of the uh, debauched aristocracy in the early part of the 20th century. Nothing was expected of him. It was a life of glamour, of champagne. Of uh, He was a notorious, um, uh, what should I say, boy about society, if you will, at the time, who really had no purpose in life until he decides that he is going to save Russia by killing Rasputin and putting together a plot to do him in. And this becomes, if you will, his idée fix. This becomes his raison d'etre. And he devotes all of his energies and times to figuring out how he's going to do away with Rasputin. One of the challenges of knowing what happens, and you describe this, is that the accounts we have of Rasputin's eventual murder come to us from the people involved in the deed. Um, what sort of picture of Rasputin does Yusupov paint in his account of the assassination plot? How trustworthy is he as a source for information concerning Rasputin or the murder? That kind of thing. Well, that's what struck me um, working on the book is that 
For so long, our image of Rasputin as a person, his life and experiences, and especially his death, comes from books that were written not just by his enemies, people like Iliador, but from the man who murdered him in cold blood, from Yusupov. Um, so much of the myth of Rasputin's murder, which is something that everybody seems to know in some sort of uh, detail, comes from Yusupov's memoirs. Um, and I always found it odd that we had taken the words of a cold-blooded killer at face value and never questioned them for what they really were. Um, Yusupov's memoirs are a sort of network of lies, the tissue of have-truths, and, and, and an attempt to, to bathe himself in glory, if you will, for a truly horrible deed. Like the only moment I think in his memoirs when he's ever really being honest is when Yusupov writes that that killing Rasputin was, quote unquote, a cowardly crime, for that is what it was. Um, he depicts himself, Yusupov does, as like sort of St. Michael slaying the dragon. He depicts Rasputin as a man that was impossible to kill, um, that he had sort of superhuman power in him, that he was Satan himself. And in fact, in the various m versions of the memoirs that Yusupov writes, he, in each one, exaggerates the impossibility of killing Rasputin with each retelling of the tale that, you know, they beat him, they poison him, uh, they shoot him, he refuses to die, that they dump him in a hole in an icy branch of the Neva River, and even then he still breathes his last and tries to make the sign of the cross and eventually only dies of drowning. I mean, this is all just a pack of lies that Yusupov told to make himself feel better, to aggrandize himself, and quite frankly, to earn money because he was now living in, in exile after the revolution in Europe and, and had no way to make a living other than to keep retelling the story of how he had killed Rasputin. Um, in ultimate fact, there was probably never any poison. Um, and in point of fact, we know from photographs uh, taken at the autopsy of Rasputin's body after it was pulled from the ice that he was shot three times at close range, twice in the torso and a third and final time at point-blank range, right into the middle of his forehead. Rasputin was more than dead when they finally dumped his body into the icy river. One of the one of the theories that has been floated, I had never heard this <clears throat> before until reading your book that anybody had ever floated this, was uh, um, that the the murder of Rasputin was in some way orchestrated or planned by the British government. Uh, how is how is there any credence to that idea? This uh, notion that the English were involved uh, has an old history, and in fact, actually, first sort of um, bubbled up to the surface right in the first days after the murder, that um, British intelligence agents were in some way connected to the killing of Rasputin. Part of the story goes back to the idea, discredited, false notion, but that was widely believed at the time, was again that Rasputin was a spy, that Rasputin and Alexandra were basically 
working with the German government, and we're trying to get Russia to leave the war. Um, and and conclude a separate peace with Germany. Now, obviously, the English were very much worried about Russia leaving the war because they needed Russia to maintain an Eastern Front in the battle against Germany. And so the theory goes was that British agents killed Rasputin as a way to prevent some sort of peace treaty between Russia and Germany. Now, there's no truth in any of this, and there's no reality that this ever happened. Um, but there have been been books written about it. There have been documentaries made about it, and there's even been this theory put forward that if you look at the the bullet hole in Rasputin's head, that the markings around the hole prove that it was、uh, a bullet fired by a British gun by an Enfield、uh, pistol. And that this means that whoever fired the fatal shot was a British agent. Well, first of all, you know the whole traitor secret、uh, peace treaty is is nonsense. Second of all, the idea that you can read what kind of gun killed Rasputin based on the markings in his forehead is just not really supported by the facts. And third, something I found in the police files in Moscow, which was truly Enlightening for me was that not only did British officers use Enfield pistols during World War II, but so did Russian officers. They were also using them as a sidearm during World War One. And in fact, one or more of the agents in the Akhran of the secret police who were tasked with guarding Rasputin had been issued Enfield. Uh, pistols as sidearms. So even if it wasn't Enfield that fired the fatal shot, we don't know who was holding that gun.、Um, I won't go into more detail. I, I try to unpack all of this in the book.、Um, I think the British probably wanted Rasputin dead,、um, but I don't think there's anything to really conclusively prove that they were in any way involved in the killing. So, just a few more questions to wrap us up.、Um, after Gregory was killed, his daughter Maria found another letter among his belongings,、uh, another letter that we could call prophetic.、Um, would you want to read that for us? My dear, a disaster is threatening us. A great misfortune is drawing near. The face of Our Lady has darkened, and the spirit is disturbed in the calm of the night. This calm will not last; terrible will be the wrath. And whither shall we flee? Start over. And whither shall we flee? It is written, "Watch, for ye know neither the day nor the hour." This day has come for our country. There will be cries and blood. In the great darkness of these griefs, I can now distinguish nothing. My hour will soon strike. I am not afraid, but I know it will be bitter. I shall suffer, and it will be pardoned to men. I shall inherit the kingdom, but you will be saved. The road of your sufferings is known to God. Men without number will perish. Many martyrs will die. Brothers will be slain by their brothers. The earth will tremble. Famine and pestilence will reign. Signs will appear to men. Pray for your salvation. 
and through the grace of the Savior, and of her who intercedes with him, you will be consoled. Grigori. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, just to... Uh... So of course the the question that that it, everybody probably asks at some point uh, to what extent uh, in in uh, to what extent was Rasputin responsible for the fall of the Romanovs and the imperial and imperial Russia? Well, I, I came away um, after six years of, of research and writing and thinking about Rasputin, um, you know, seeing him as this great scapegoat, sort of one of the great scapegoats of history. And it's not to deny his faults. It's to not to deny him of responsibility for things that he did to further uh, the demise of the of the autocracy. Um, but everyone wants to put it all on his shoulders. Um, it was it was uh, strange to just read account after account after account um, of people who were part of Russia at the time, in the government, in the army, at court, and they all want to place it on Rasputin's shoulders, as if as if it hadn't been Rasputin, none of this would have happened. There would have been no war, there would have been no revolution, there would have been no downfall of the dynasty. And that's so utterly simplistic and incorrect that I hope, if nothing else, I can, I can move us off of this simplistic way of thinking about him and his role uh, and his place in history. That's great. Our last question would have been, what do you hope that listeners and readers of your book will take away? But I think you've just answered that. Um, so, Douglas, thank you so much for joining us on Unobscured. Yes. Sam? Yes, thank you so much. This has been amazing to be able to chat with you after reading your book. It's This is a great, great Thanks for the opportunity to talk. Um, it's, uh, you know, he's one of these figures that I think will always hold... Uh, out great fascination for us. Um, and uh, I've you know, devoted all these years trying to plumb his depths. And I, I took it as far as I could go, but I don't think we'll ever really get to the deep, dark bottom of it all. But it's, it's fascinating to explore, to think about, discuss. And um, it's been great having the opportunity to talk with you. Great. Yeah, thank you. Well, Thanks we don't want, so yeah, much. we don't want to take any more time than you, than you have. So, um, yeah, you just you have our gratitude and uh, thanks for the book. Thanks for the talk. Thanks. Yeah, uh, and, let me know when it comes together. I look forward to hearing it. Yeah, we'll keep you in the loop. Uh, and oh. Zach, thanks again for your work. Thanks for doing the recording on that side. That's it for this week's episode of Unobscured. Stick around after this short sponsor break for a preview of what's in store for next week. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. 
Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. And then there's a period of disillusionment with the people and disillusionment with the results of that revolution of 1905. And many intellectuals who had been Marxists or liberals begin to, but especially Marxists, uh, begin to turn away from from uh, materialism and they are drawn to to idealism. They're drawn to religion. They are frustrated with the political world and they they look for other other forms of, of, of meaning and identity and, and so on um, as, the, as the political situation becomes less and less free after uh, 1906, 1907. Unobscured was created by me, Aaron Mankey, and produced by Matt Frederick, Alex Williams, and Josh Thane, in partnership with iHeartRadio, with research by Sam Alberti, writing by Carl Nellis, and original music by Chad Lawson. Learn more about our contributing historians, source materials, and links to our other shows over at grimandmild.com unobscured. And as always, thanks for listening. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome.